damn, let's talk some shit. It's Polly Siegel and Victoria Aaron, two licensed therapists who've spent way too much money on degrees, certifications, and trainings. Mm. We both love what we do and couldn't imagine working in any other profession, but we're forced to be serious all the time, and that gets boring. Shit Talking Shrinks discusses important mental health topics, the human experience, and society at large, while poking fun along the way. It won't be all fun and games, because after every episode, you'll walk away with tangible tools to navigate life more effectively. We love a tangible tool. This episode is sponsored by Joyous. Okay, I have to tell you about this incredible company, Joyous. It's an at-home ketamine treatment that delivers ketamine to your door for $129 a month, which is absolutely unheard of because most ketamine treatment is hella expensive. And what ketamine does is it helps our prefrontal cortex work more optimally. And the prefrontal cortex helps with decision-making, problem-solving, emotional regulation. It's the part of the brain that gets us through hard shit. And so if you're someone who has struggled with anxiety and depression and you've tried antidepressants or you've tried mood stabilizers and they haven't helped, ketamine is absolutely the next step. And I have seen my clients thrive while using ketamine. Joyous makes it super easy to access this life-changing medicine. And you can start the process by visiting www.joyous.team. Episode 11, Addiction and the Recovery Journey. Okay, so Victoria and I have this battle that goes around this topic because she believes that alcoholism and then being a drug addict are completely two separate things. Which they are. Which they're not. (laughs) They're two people struggling with a substance that creates problems in their lives. But that's a battle that we will not get into today. Uh, Yeah, I'm there in my mind, but I'm going to get present. All right, ready. 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 Okay, so Victoria's been sober for a very long time. So long. So long. And it's impressive. And she does really great work in the recovery community. And I feel like everyone should know your story. Mm, Everyone know me. Know my story. I like it. Okay. Wait, can you tell us why we're doing this podcast? Why we're doing the podcast or this episode? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I just totally lost everything in my brain. It (laughs) emptied out. (laughs) All over the floor. Why are we doing this episode, Polly? First of all, one in four people are going to struggle with substance abuse within their lifetime. Mm. One in four. That's a very high number. Yeah. And every person who's listening to this has known someone who has struggled with substance abuse or addiction. Yeah. Even if they don't know it yet. Even if they don't know it yet, it could be a family member, a close friend, a coworker, a random person that you see at the bar that can barely stand up and you just know they have a fucking problem. Yeah. So I think it touches all of our lives. And I think the purpose of this episode is really to help people understand what is addiction. And if you know people that are struggling, how can you get them help? What's the process to get them help? And what are the options of care? Love it. Okay, cool. Thanks for explaining But ultimately, before we get to all of that good, rich stuff, I want people to know your story. So I've told my story a lot, right? And like I'm, my drug use and alcohol use is not that fucking interesting besides the fact that I started at 12, which in my community is not that early. Like I've been in AA meetings where it's like I started drinking at eight years old. (laughs) I'm like... (laughs) that's insane you know but like that's what it is for a lot of people so I started getting fucked up at 12 
And I went hard until I was 19, like really hard. You know, it wasn't as much about how much I used, right? That's like a common misconception. It was more about what my inner world was looking like from the time that I started till the time that I stopped. And this is probably where we differ and probably where that argument comes in about the alcoholic or the addict, right? It's like the disease of addiction, as I understand it in my personal life, is there's a mental obsession, a spiritual malady, and a physical allergy. That's the 12-step model, right? From 12 to 19, I understand my use as being a physical allergy to drugs and alcohol, meaning I could not stop, meaning I had no choice. And like, I remember the first time I got fucked up, I was like, I want to do this forever. It felt Mm. so good. I had been so trapped in my head. I had been so uncomfortable in my body. I could not breathe. I could not be a part of from a very young age. And the first time I got high, it was like, yeah. Mm. And then I was just like, I need that. I need it. And And that's where the obsession came in of mm -hmm. like, I need this to regulate. Right. And it wasn't as conscious as that. And I don't understand my disease as conscious as that. Because if it was, I could make a choice to stop. Mm -hmm. But I didn't care about any consequence that I had. I got kicked out of high school when I was 14 years old. I got arrested when I was 14. I got sent to a private Jewish high school. Bitch, you a criminal. (laughs) I'm a criminal. Anyway, so... You know, I I went through all these consequences. I was at this private Jewish high school. I was a raging addict, like, and I was one of like 39 kids in my class. And all the parents tried to get me kicked out. I was constantly fucked up in the school. Like, it was crazy. Um, (laughs) Then I went to college. You know, I graduated high school with like a 2.3 GPA. I went to Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. And that's where my addiction like hit so hard. And it was so fun. I had the time of my life, but there were these moments in between where I would like look in the mirror and be like, what the fuck? And I hated myself. I've hated myself my whole life. I've never been. <laughs> You're <just> my... <laughs> I'm serious. Like, I hate myself. Yeah, I just hated myself. And like, that's a common thread among a lot of addicts is like, and I think it's more about like being just obsessed with yourself, oneself, whatever. So, yeah, so I like had this, you know, crazy year in northern Arizona. I flunked out of college. I came home. I spiraled out. My best friend died. And like I woke up and I went to AA on accident. My friend was going for like a DUI and I was like, you need help. And I was sitting in that room and I was like, oh, my God, this is me. Like I finally felt like I was home. Like I was in this meeting and they were talking about like, From the time that I could think, like, I've been obsessed with myself and my condition and, like, everything around me, like, how it affected me and, like, drugs and alcohol, like, freed me of my mind. It freed me of this insanity that was just happening, this warped perception of the world. And I, like, finally felt like I could breathe. And so it's like I'm in this meeting and I'm like, fuck, yeah, this is me. And I got sober and I was stayed sober for eight months. I was 19 years old. This is in 2011. And then I went to like a college town. I went to Indiana University for a little five weekend and I relapsed for three days. And here's where my alcoholism really showed itself. Right. So 
I was just a fucked up kid. Like I can get high recreationally. So I smoked weed, right? It had been eight months and I was a daily smoker. Like I was a daily mm-hmm. pot user. And as soon as I smoked, within 24 hours, I had drank an entire fifth of some type of alcohol. I was doing whippets. <laughs> oh, we have man. a good whippet story. Whippets. We have a good whippet story for you guys. We'll get to whippets another day. Um, I was doing whippets. I was real fucked up. You were blowing a dude in an alley for just a cigarette. I wasn't even. Yeah. Like I became a sex worker and I uh, <laughs> sold, you know, all of my things. And <laughs> <laughs> you didn't become a sex worker. I traveled worker. on a train to Idaho, you know, like, no, no, none of that happened. Did you do any sex work in your addiction? Because that's pretty common. You know, it's really funny. I was talking about this with my friend uh, a couple of days ago, actually. I was hooking up with this guy when I was a freshman in college who would buy me alcohol. I'm full blown into my addiction within like not 24 hours. It's it. It's on. It's popping. And I didn't want to drink, but I couldn't stop. And so I go home and I'm like in bed. I'm 19. and My mom's there. I'm like, I'm going to kill myself if I don't go to treatment. And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And they sent me to treatment. And I've been sober ever since. Where did you go, by the way? Hazelden, Oregon. Hazelden, Betty Ford, excuse me. Oh, I know that program. Yeah. Cool. It was cool. It's for medical professionals. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely wasn't at the time. Yeah. That's an incredible story. Thank you. All jokes aside, I mean, Victoria is incredibly impressive in this department one because she has so much knowledge around recovery and the journey and being able to get help and create the most healthful life possible your story allows for hope that if you are currently struggling or you have loved ones who are struggling there's the ability to get better for sure it's not a lost cause no not at all And I think, too, like this is something that a lot of people don't understand about addiction is that it's not as much about the substance. There's new school beliefs about addiction and old school beliefs about addiction. My personal story is the old school belief about addiction. And that's what keeps me sober today. Mm. The new school beliefs of like you can just stop or you can moderate like that works for some people. It doesn't work for me. I need to be entirely abstinent. But it's not as much about the abstinence as it is about the spiritual journey and like the leveling of my pride and like the working on my character defects. Cause I have a personality problem more than anything. You don't agree, but that's how I've recovered. Okay. If I could just stop, I wouldn't need AA. Did you say a personality defect? It's a personality problem. Interesting. This, this is sparking my clinical. Yeah. Tell me about your clinical spark. (laughs) (laughs) So a personality problem. I very much so view addiction as a disease of the brain. I don't necessarily think of it as a personality defect. I almost view it as like glaucoma. Well, the disease of the brain creates the personality issue. Right. But I guess I guess I create a differential or there's a separation between addiction and what personality looks like when you're in it versus when you're in recovery or sober. Those are two very different people. See, that's the thing, right? I've been in the program, right, for 10 years. When I'm not working a program, I am worse. As a person. As a person than I was when I'm using. 
Okay. Alcohol and drugs are my solution. They're a solution to my issue as just a person. Like most of the amends that I have to make and have had to make over the years are to people that I've harmed in sobriety, not working a program, just being a selfish asshole. Mm. Mm. You really have my my brain thinking right now. Am I just getting your brain going? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my brain is wet. <laughs> yeah. My brain is wop right now. Wob. <laughs> Interesting. So you see it as very much so as the disease is intertwined into your personality. And regardless of sobriety or not, it's there and it's a constant work in progress on this defect. Yes, regardless of abstinence or not. Right. That's what I'm saying. It yeah. doesn't matter if you're sober or you're using. Mm -hmm. It's this personality defect. It's not a moral issue. No, no, no. It's a medical disease. Right. And this is how I understand it in my personal life. Now, in my professional life, there's a lot of variations. Why don't you tell us about what we can do? Yeah. I mean, Where we can go when we need help. Yeah. I mean, I again, I'm going to preface it. One in four people struggle with addiction within their lifetime. We all know someone who has struggled with substance abuse. And one of the common things that both of us get now, I'm not in recovery. I've never struggled with substance abuse, even though I have the licensure to work with it. Mm -hmm. Now, food addiction is a whole nother story. That's another level. Right. I mean, I could talk about my own food addiction journey, but that's not the topic of this episode. But a lot of things that we hear is my friend, my mom, my coworker is struggling and I don't know what the fuck to do. Mm -hmm. Like, how do I get them help? Because mm -hmm. they're spiraling and their life is crumbling. Yeah. Or I think my friend, my mom, my coworker has a problem, but I don't really know what to do. And it's not terrible. It hasn't completely spiraled out. But I see them struggling and I know they need help. Where do I go? Where's yeah. my roadmap? So I want to explain to everyone, there's different levels of care when it comes to addiction treatment. Lowest level of care, meaning the least amount of therapeutic intervention as well as the least amount of time spent in that therapeutic intervention is outpatient, right? Which is mm -hmm. when you go and see a therapist one hour per week, that's outpatient level of care. Yep. So there's not a lot of structure. There's not a lot of supervision, and it's the least amount of hours dedicated in a therapeutic setting. Mm -hmm. So that's what I provide in my private practice is outpatient care. I mm -hmm. see a client once or twice a week. Then a step up from that is called IOP, intensive outpatient, mm -hmm. which is typically nine to 10 hours per week of therapeutic intervention. And most of these programs last around three months and they can be extended. Up from that, so a step up from IOP is PHP, which is partial hospitalization program. And this typically involves 20 to 30 hours a week of programming. And it involves individual therapy as well as group therapy and case management mm -hmm. and psychiatric consultation. And again, 20 to 30 hours per week is a lot of therapeutic intervention, and that's needed for some individuals who are struggling with substance abuse or dependency. A step up from PHP is RTC. You know, I like to think of this as inpatient or residential treatment. A lockdown facility. A lockdown <laughs> facility. <laughs> um, and this typically a minimum stay is around 28 days, 30 days. A lot of this depends on insurance. But it's a minimum of 28 days. You can typically extend up to 90 days. 
and you are in a highly structured, monitored, sober environment. Yeah. So you're living there, you're living and breathing sobriety, and that's the highest level of care. Mm -hmm. So you have options here. Now, how we determine where someone plugs into these is very much so dependent on their presentation. What's their mental health look like? What does their addictive behaviors look like? What's the severity intensity? And depending on that, you either get placed in OP, IOP, PHP, residential. There's actually a assessment that we use, ASEM, mm-hmm. that will allow us to get a really good picture of someone's use and then plug them into the appropriate level of care. This is my favorite, like when a family calls me because they have somebody in crisis and they're like, I think they need IOP. And then I hear their use and I'm like, this motherfucker needs detox now and like should be in a residential treatment center for at least six months. Like this is like (laughs) insane. Yeah. You know, and then they're like, "Okay, thanks for your help. And then they just like I never hear from them. You know, it's like it's funny how families become the experts when they're not. Yeah. I actually, interestingly enough, got a call three days ago. Yeah. And it was a young man who wasn't sure whether he needed higher level of care or whether outpatient would be a good fit. And of course, I'm asking my, you know, ASEM questions around like, what does use look like? How often are you drinking? Frequency. And he's like, yeah, I'm I'm drinking about a pint a day. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, outpatient is not the right fit, right? Like you need higher level of care. You need more structure, more monitoring. You need detox, right? Because you could even go through withdrawals if you stop drinking. And you would die. Right. I mean, alcohol withdrawals can lead to death. So we take it very, very seriously. Yeah. Here's a little educational tidbit. The only drugs that you can die from in terms of withdrawal are benzodiazepines and alcohol. Keep that in your back pocket. And barbiturates, but no one can find barbiturates anymore. There's no Barbies out there. Because benzos replaced them. Exactly. Yeah. So, again, it's really important when you know someone who's struggling but don't know where to start is find someone who's trained in the ASIM assessment so they can do a clinical diagnostic of that person and be able to place them in appropriate care. Because if you're drinking a pint a day and you go to outpatient, it ain't going to work. No, no, it's real dangerous. You need higher level of care and that's imperative in order to help that person. Yeah. And I think like even before, right? So I do interventions and I come into the family system or whatever system it is when somebody's in crisis a lot of time. I'm going to tell you guys the golden ticket to getting somebody help. Please. Are you fucking ready? I'm ready. Bye bye. Are you sure? Leverage is the only way to get somebody help. And I don't want to downplay what I do or what other individuals do. And I think that there are probably some professionals who are going to disagree with me, but that's okay. Fuck you. You know, Uh, leverage is the best manipulation tool there is. And when we are getting somebody to go to treatment, essentially, we are manipulating them. Mm. We're trying to change their level of motivation. So you have contemplation, preparation and action. We just want to get them to say yes. Right. So I will go to any length with the people that I'm working with to get them to say yes. Best thing that we can do is find the thing that if we take it away, the addict or alcoholic has no other option. Mm. We basically lovingly and clinically back them into a corner where they can either say, yes, I will go or no. And then there are severe consequences 
usually boundaries from the family. I actually really appreciate how real you are in this because I've spoken to other interventionists and they sort of paint this rainbows and butterflies picture of how they're going to get your loved one into treatment. (laughs) And I feel like you just really named it, right? Like you're putting the person in a pressure cooker. Yeah. And that pressure cooker then allows them actually to get help. Yeah. And doesn't beat around the bush or bullshit. Because time is of the essence when it comes to treatment. It sure is. Like there is a window and I've seen this in the interventions that I do. It's like there's a moment where if you do not do things the right way, that motherfucker is going to run. Families don't follow their boundaries. And so a lot of the intervention work that I do is coaching with the families first. If you want to bring me on, you have to fucking listen to me or you're wasting a lot of money and a lot of my time, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Because if we can get that addict to recognize, they literally will have nothing. They will have no support. They will have no monetary means. They will have no blank, 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 blank. We are leveraging their dependence on their system, their family system, their you know marriage, whatever. If we can get them to understand that, nine out of 10 times they say yes. I so admire the work that you do. I know personally I could not do it, even though you know I have the licensure to work with addiction. It takes so much strength what you do and diligence and resiliency. Resiliency, truly. Oh, my God, I'm what? (laughs) We hope that this episode was not only informative, but allowed viewers and our audience to know if someone is struggling, one, they can get help. Two, there are level of care options. And three, there are professionals like Victoria Aaron who can help that person get into treatment. Yes. There are so many interventionists and sober coaching and case management options. So if you are alone and you're like, I don't know what to do, step into these resources so that you have guidance and coaching so that you can help that person or even help yourself get into treatment. Don't do it on your own. Love you, bitch. (laughs) All right. We will catch you all later. Thanks for tuning in.